It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome back to Basketball Conference, the ACC Football Podcast. My name is Joey Weaver. I'm from, from the Rumble Seat, covering Georgia Tech for the SB Nation Network. Joining me tonight, as always, my co-host, Mike McDaniel, from InsideTheACC.com, covering the whole, the whole conference. It's good to be back for Episode 3. Thank you guys for listening to the first couple of episodes. Hopefully, uh, we're working out more kinks as we go. But, Mike, I'm, I'm excited to be back and uh, talking. We got, we got some ACC kickoff to talk about here. Yeah, so first of all, hey Joey, how are you? Um, ACC football kickoff in Charlotte, North Carolina last week. Uh, we touched on it briefly uh, last episode. We kind of said that we were going to get a little bit more into it. Um, just want to talk a little bit about a couple of the funny quotes that came out of there. Uh, first from your alma mater, Georgia Tech, um, Paul Johnson talking about third down offense, which is always fun considering the option at Georgia Tech and the fact that um, they, they don't throw a whole lot, but when they get in third and long, it's pretty predictable they're going to throw the football. Well, one of the reporters at the ACC kickoff asked Paul Johnson about why, you know, or how he feels his offense is performing on third down. He said, well, you get any offense in the country into third and long and see how they perform. And he said he doesn't put a lot, whole lot of stock into that, which I thought was one of the more insightful things in the ACC kickoff, really. It was kind of a fun, a fun nonchalant, joking type of Atmosphere, and then Paul Johnson comes out and kind of throws some truth truth bullets out there, if you will. Um, just talking about how his offense, even though it's like third and long, and they run the option, it's the fact that if any offense in the country gets into third and long, it's going to be an issue. If you're if you're a reporter in one of these scenarios where everyone's sitting around in a room asking Paul Johnson questions, and you you try to criticize his offense, tread lightly. Uh, Paul Johnson is no stranger to having to defend his system. Obviously, it's a little more of an unusual system that you don't see as much of around the country. And so he's, he's gotten used to it. He, that's a little bit of where his surly, kind of gruff reputation comes from, is uh, a lot of people kind of wanting to give him grief. And it tends to be the same kind of grief every time. And he ends up having to repeat his explanations. But uh, never uh, never shy to give a good quote in some of these situations. So uh, not, not able to say I'm surprised that that came from from my boy Paul Johnson. Yeah, definitely. Um, so outside of Paul Johnson, a couple other interesting quotes. Um, first of all, Louisville is extremely high on Lamar Jackson. Uh, we thought that already, but specifically, um, Bobby Petrino came out and said last year Lamar showed me that he was a tremendous talent. His passing ability and vision were both great, so we focus on that this spring. So as we know, we kind of struggled throwing the football vertically last year. Um, was really only able to complete a lot of short passes, so we hope to see Lamar Jackson improve a bit in the accuracy department this year. Um, Petrino also said, I measure a season by how we improve as it goes on. Every team we play is going to be good, so the season doesn't get any easier because Lamar Jackson is now um, a year older in the offensive system, but it only gets harder. Um, So it's kind of a testament to Bobby Petrino. He's been around, and he knows that there's going to be some Heisman buzz behind Lamar Jackson, especially if he figures out how to throw the football. He's that kind of talent. Um, so it's going to be interesting to watch Louisville this year as a dark horse in the Atlantic. And not only is he going into a sophomore year more familiar with the Louisville playbook, but he's more familiar with playbooks in general, it turns out, as 
Apparently in high school, he had no playbook. They just had some series of hand signals that communicated plays. So never a, never a dull moment, especially when you start talking about, you know, South Florida high school football. But, um, yeah, real interesting to see how he matures in year two. You talk about him wanting to pass more down the field. He's definitely got the physical tools to do that. Very strong arm that can, can cover a lot of distance. It's just a matter of knowing where to put the ball and, and getting it on the spots that he wants to. Definitely. Um, and then another, you know, to kind of wrap this up, uh, something from my alma mater, Virginia Tech. So obviously a lot of buzz surrounding Justin Fuente and his hire with the Hokies um, and the fact that he's bringing in a whole revamped offense uh, to Blacksburg. So they interviewed Justin Fuente. He says, you throw the ball to score points, but you run the ball to win. Now, a lot of people like to make a lot of the fact that um, Justin Fuente, they throw the ball like 40 or 50 times a game, but he understands the value of tempo in his offense. Um, he kind of expounded upon that and said tempo is important to an extent, but too much of it is not necessarily a good thing. Uh, you have to manage it to the point where it helps helps your team win the game. So he knows that his tempo is important, but too much of it, um, you get a little bit frazzled out there. He knows that he's going to have to get a quarterback out there um, who kind of is able to gauge the tempo and get the team going in the right direction. Um, obviously, uh, going too quickly without moving the ball efficiently is going to be uh, could end up being an issue for the Hokies. So Justin Fuente is obviously mindful of that as he moves into his first season as head coach in Blacksburg. Yeah, something you saw a lot of in his offenses between TCU and Memphis was managing tempo and uh, kind of various styles of what was done in, in each of those places. And so it's, it's an absolutely true comment. I mean, you, you try to go too fast and you end up getting really sloppy. Uh, try to go too slow, you might run out of time if you're trying to play catch-up. I mean, tempo is a, a, probably a, one of the less kind of understood things among a lot of fans, um, but definitely something that has to be managed and, and utilized properly for an offensive attack. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I thought I was done, but there's one more from Dino Babers I want to touch on. So Dino Babers is the one hire that wasn't in the Coastal Division, um, the one new hire obviously coming in the, into the Atlantic Division coaching Syracuse from Bowling Green. Um, he was considered at the ACC football kickoff to be one of the more, um, one of the more animated and entertaining speakers there. Um, one of the funnier things he said was, I've never had a third year out of school. Um, it would be like a graduate or PhD year for me, and he'd like that to be at Syracuse. So he's kind of talking about his short stints at all the schools he's been to in the past. Um, obviously, coming into Syracuse, there's a lot riding on on the fact that he's going to come in and kind of revamp an offense that ha- that's had a lot of issues over the past couple of years, as we've seen with schools like Virginia Tech and Virginia. Um, and then, of course, Miami's had issues on offense as well, so... Um, all the offensive issues in the conference don't only come from the Coastal Division. They're in the Atlantic Division as well, as we know, Boston College, Wake Forest, and, of course, Syracuse. Man, and I think that Babers hire has an awfully high ceiling to it. I, I think the things that he could do to transform that team and that program, um, don't want to, you know, don't want to sit here and just put it all on him and, you know, put the world of expectations on him. But then again, uh, I think what he's capable of with that offense and what he did at Bowling Green that is a, a very high potential hire there. Um, but, Mike, I think it's interesting that, you know, these are the most newsworthy sound bites coming out of the ACC kickoff. It feels like this is about the only conference where nobody has severely wedged their foot into their mouth and kind of made a spectacle of what a ridiculous and ridiculous in a negative way kind of thing that they said. So I think in a, in a way you can almost look at this, you know, for the conference is like a no news is good news kind of thing. 
Oh, yeah, definitely. I agree, especially when you hear about all the stuff that's happening in, like, the Big Ten, for example, Jim Harbaugh, uh, X, Y, and Z with the satellite camps. There were all sorts of quotes thrown around there. Um, but also what was interesting today is there was some sort of, uh, what I read online, there was some sort of luncheon or something like that. Will Muschamp, obviously new, new head coach of South Carolina, um, was kind of throwing some shade um, at old Dabo Sweeney of Clemson, uh, saying that Dabo's wife was hitting on Muschamp and all this other stuff, trying to fire up the rivalry a little bit. Um, I actually tweeted this though. It'll we'll see who gets the final laugh. Um, you know, come the end of the season when Clemson will definitely win that game by probably four or five touchdowns. Yeah, I think that has a, a lot of potential and maybe not even potential, but just it's going to get ugly, uh, both from a scoreboard standpoint and from a physical standpoint. But it seems a little bit like Steve Spurrier kind of up and left in the middle of the night, in the middle of last season. And I kind of wonder if he didn't fully clean out his desk. And now Muschamp has gotten a hold of his playbook of throwing shade, like you mentioned, at the head coach up at Clemson. That's a... Uh, that's an interesting way to introduce yourself to your, your rival head coach. Yeah, especially when you're coming from a program at Florida where Mil Will Muschamp obviously struggled the last couple of seasons. I'm not sure where he all of a sudden got all of his confidence from, but uh, it's good. It'll fire up the fan base at South Carolina, and that's something that's definitely much needed for them in the SEC. I look forward to Dabo Swinney getting a question about Will Muschamp at some point this year and him just saying something like scoreboard. Like just something, be it. something simple, just, you know, I've got a better program than he does. He doesn't have any room to sit here and start talking talking trash. But yeah. um, and and that'll be it. Yeah, exactly. Um, so the, the other thing I wanted to bring up is we, as one of the results of the kickoff, we got our uh, our preseason polls came out. Always a good time. Um, always good fodder for later in the season when someone is nowhere near as good as you thought they would be, <laughs> Georgia Tech, um, or when someone is way better than you thought they would be. Um, and so let's go through these real quick. Let's start with the Atlantic Division. And I want to start here because I think it is way more clean cut. Uh, so the, the media voted number one, Clemson, number two, Florida State, Louisville, uh, NC State, Boston College, Syracuse, and Wake Forest. And to me, that is actually pretty spot on. We were talking a little bit beforehand, might flip Boston College and Syracuse here for me. Um, but... Overall, I mean, I think the Atlantic Division, there's there's something like four distinct tiers to me, which is crazy for only seven teams. But I think at the top, you've got your obvious is Clemson and Florida State. I think number two by themselves is Louisville. Number three, I think, is NC State. And number four, probably Boston College, Syracuse, Wake Forest. And if you wanted to, you could even make it five and put Wake Forest in one all by themselves. A league um, of their own. Yeah, exactly. It, this is... This is very like a very defined power structure in this division right now um, as far as who's better than who. And I think you saw that last year where not a whole lot of surprising outcomes. Um, NC State in particular, I, I like referring to as the bar. They, you know, they were the, the single de you know, definition of average. They didn't beat anybody they shouldn't have. They didn't lose to anybody they shouldn't have. Um, so a very predictable division. Mike, do you have any qualms with kind of how these teams were, were ranked in here? Not necessarily. I'm kind of on board uh, on board with you. Um, before I kind of get into it in a little more detail, uh, for those of you listening that are wondering how close it was in the writer's opinion between Clemson and Florida State, 
Clemson was tabbed with 148 first-place votes, and Florida State with only 42. So the Deshaun Watson factor, I think, obviously plays a lot into that, um, the fact that they have a Heisman quarterback, um, the Heisman frontrunner perhaps, depending on how you view Christian McCaffrey, um, you know, on their team. So it really wasn't all that close between Clemson and Florida State as far as the preseason poll was concerned um, coming out of the Atlantic Division. Um, but, you know, no real gripes. You know, I'm kind of on board with you. I think it's definitely four or five tiers, depending on how you look at it, with seven teams. Clemson and Florida State being ahead of everybody else. Louisville is trying really hard to get into that top tier. Uh, if Lamar Jackson takes a step forward like we talked about a couple minutes ago, um, they could definitely make some noise there as well. Um, NC State, like you said, definitely the bar. Um, definition of mediocre. They recruit really well, um, considering the fact that they haven't really played all that well since Philip Rivers left the school a while back. Um, it's really been that long since NC State's been really relevant. But they've always been good enough to hang around in the Atlantic Division, um, and that was until the last couple of years when, of course, Clemson and Florida State kind of separated themselves. Um, BC, Syracuse, Wake Forest, the way they have it ordered now, I'd put Syracuse as fifth in the, conf- in the uh, division. Um, I'd put them ahead of Boston College just because I think Dino Babers and that offense will score a lot more points than Boston College will. And a lot of people like to harp on the fact that Boston College has this really good defense, but their offense was one of the worst in college football last year. So in my opinion, I'd put Syracuse ahead of Boston College, um, but I'd have Boston College sixth. Wake Forest, they can't do, really do anything right on offense or on defense. They're trying really hard to improve, but it's really, really tough to recruit to that school just based on academic standards alone. And the fact that their athletics program is not nearly as good, um, especially in football, uh, as they should be, or as they even could be. Um, The basketball program, obviously, they've got some history behind them, but they haven't been good in basketball in a really long time either. So Um, Wake Forest rounding out the Atlantic Division, I don't really have any problems with that either. You mentioned that battle for fifth place between Boston College and Syracuse, and we're actually going to talk about that a little later as we preview both those teams and their seasons and uh, kind of the game between them that might be a little bit of a swing game on, on how this division turns out. But overall, I think safe to say we'd be surprised if there was a whole lot of drastic movement uh, between any of these teams on from where they were picked uh, preseason. Which brings me to the Coastal Division, the division of almost, you know, close your eyes and throw a dart and see where it lands and rank teams that way. Uh, so you, you start with first place, North Carolina, the returning division champ. Uh, go number two, Miami, number three, Pitt, number four, Virginia Tech, number five, Duke, number six, Georgia Tech, number seven, Virginia. And now the noteworthy thing here is that North Carolina leads the division with 121 first place votes. The only team in the division that did not get a first place vote was Virginia. Uh, Miami got 50, Pitt got 14, Virginia Tech got three, Duke got two, and Georgia Tech got one, which is as typical as you can get for this crazy coastal division where anything can and will happen. Yeah, definitely. Um, North Carolina being picked to finish first, I mean, we were talking about this a little bit before we came on. Basically, if you won the coastal division last year, you're generally picked to finish first the following year. Um, It's kind of status quo in that regard as far as the preseason poll is concerned. Um, within the ACC. North Carolina, it's really funny, though, when you look at all these teams, they all have question marks on offense, right? Because you look at North Carolina, they have probably the least amount of question marks in the Coastal Division, um, considering the fact that they're returning pretty much their entire offense except for the quarterback. Um, Miami, they have offensive line issues. Pittsburgh, 
their quarterback as a game manager doesn't always get the job done through the air. Virginia Tech, we don't know who their quarterback's going to be. Duke's starting quarterback is Thomas Sirk, and he blew out his Achilles. Um, Georgia Tech, their offense was only enough to score them three wins last year. And Virginia, their offense hasn't been good in the last five years. So really, it's North Carolina, Miami, Pitt, and Virginia Tech with all this potential on offense. Duke's breaking in a new quarterback. Georgia Tech, they got the ceiling of probably nine or ten wins when their offense is performing at its best. And then you got Virginia, who knows, right? Because Bronco Mendenhall is a new coach. He's a good coach, um, but obviously new to the conference. It's going to take him a couple of years to get his offensive players in place, especially on the offensive line like we talked about last week. Um, and, and so this is really a crapshoot in the Coastal. I don't really have a, much of a problem with how it's presented here. I'd change maybe a couple things, maybe put Virginia Tech and Georgia Tech a little bit higher on this list. Um, but overall, I mean, if you just have to guess one through seven, this is good as get, as good of a guess as I would have um, heading into the season. I mean, nobody knows what's going to happen. Like you said, there's three new coaches. There's a second-year head coach in Pat Narduzzi at Pitt. There's a bunch of new quarterbacks. Georgia Tech is coming back from a crap ton of injuries. I mean, literally, like, nobody knows, and I feel like we are barreling towards a five-and-three Coastal Division champion, um, which – it's kind of par for the course when we start talking about this division and its history. But, um, yeah, just going to be an interesting group to watch. I think there's a lot of potential for, like I said, a 5-3 and three champion where everyone just kind of beats themselves up and there's not one clear dominant team. Because, as you mentioned, Mike, I mean, a lot of these teams have a lot of flaws to them uh, that, that could be exploited given a bad matchup. No, definitely. So it's just going to be anybody's guess to see who ends up actually winning the Coastal Division. As usual. Um, so we'll, we'll come back next week. We'll talk a little bit more about the preseason All-ACC teams. But for now, I want to move into these uh, these season previews we, we started last week. So last week we started with Virginia Tech, uh, Virginia, and Georgia Tech. We, told, we called that our wheelhouse, right? I mean, that's your alma mater, my alma mater, and the – team that your alma mater most closely monitors. This week, we're going to talk about the former Big East. We're going to be talking about Boston College, Syracuse, and Pittsburgh, uh, previewing their 2016 campaigns. I want to start out with Boston College here. Um, obviously, they come off of a year that was really weird how their how their team shaped up, where their offense was basically useless, uh, basically accomplished almost nothing all year. But their defense was easily a top five unit in the country, arguably the single best defense in the country. Uh, unfortunately, it only netted them three wins on the year. Um, Mike, when you when you look at this offseason, so they, they lost their defensive coordinator that led that unit last year. That was Don Brown. Uh, he was hired off by Michigan. They replaced him with Jim Reed, who is a former Boston College coordinator, now coaching line – or was – Last year was coaching linebackers at Iowa. And then same thing on offense. They fired the offensive coordinator, Todd Fitch. They bring in your boy, Scott Leffler, most recently of, uh, of Virginia Tech. For God help offense. him. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I mean, we – it's at some level we don't know what to make of this Boston College offense or defense this year, if, if I'm not mistaken. No, no, definitely. Um you know, as far as the defense is concerned, obviously their unit was very good last year. They finished uh, first in the country 
um, as far as fewest yards per game allowed, only allowing 254.3 yards per game. So that's really impressive. But then when you think about it, they're playing in the ACC, which is a little bit weak outside of, of course, the two top teams, Clemson and Florida State, um, and then North Carolina. Um, so I guess the three top teams. Um, I mean, the offenses in the ACC aren't great, but Boston College's defense was very good. Um, I don't want to take anything away from the fact that their defense was as good as they were. Um, So, like I mentioned, first in the country in yards allowed, they were second in rushing yards allowed, and fourth in points allowed. So definitely one of the top defenses in the entire country, but of course, with Jim Reed moving in, taking over as defensive coordinator for Don Brown, it's going to be a question of how much of a transition is there actually going to be. Uh, obviously, Boston College is returning a lot of talent on the defense, um, especially defensive line, bringing back two seniors, Truman Gudefell, Kevin Kavalek, um, and, and they're kind of led by their linebacking core, though. Uh, Matt Milano, of course, uh, the senior linebacker, and Connor Strahan, who's a um, 6'2", 230-pound junior, had a very good year for them last year. So it kind of starts with that front seven there um, on defense for Boston College. I mean, if that front seven can produce like they did last year, and hold points or hold teams consistently to under 20 points per game. All Boston College needs to do is improve a little bit on offense, and I think they'll definitely be bowl eligible. So they only mustered 73 points on the offensive side of the ball last year in eight ACC games. That's stunning to me, especially when you consider the defenses in the ACC that they were playing against weren't all that good. Um, they're they're playing against the Clemson. They're playing against a Florida State. Okay, but. Once you get outside of that, and, and maybe Virginia Tech in other years, uh, Virginia Tech's defense wasn't great last year, but maybe in other years and you play Virginia Tech defense, those are three pretty good defenses that you'll play in ACC play. But overall, um, they need to improve on offense. I think bringing in Scott Leffler is an interesting hire because he didn't really perform well as a coordinator of Virginia Tech in his three years at the school. I mean, the, the Tech offense really struggled. They ran a lot of bubble screens, which is something that'll be revolutionary to Boston College, which was kind of a one-trick pony. We'll line up in I formation and just hand the ball to John Hilleman. Um, I think they're going to want to do some of that just because that's what their identity has been in the past, and that's kind of their strength. John Hilleman, obviously, last year was very good on offense for Boston College. He really was their only source of offense at the running back position. Um, he was a guy who finished the year... Um, with 51 attempts for 200 yards rushing and two touchdowns at the running back position. That's really all they had. Um, Quarterback, it was kind of a revolving door. It was Jeff Smith. It was Darius Wade. It was, you know, a quarterback taking off, scrambling to run. But as far as a true rushing attack is concerned, I mean, they're really, their only running threat at the position really was John Hilleman. So that's something we're going to definitely want to watch um, heading to this season for Boston College is how John Hilleman will progress if he gets more attempts there as a sophomore. But uh, Scott Leffler is going to try to spread the offense out for Boston College, something that hasn't been really seen there in, in, in a few years. Um, they're going to try to throw the ball a little bit more. It looks like Darius Wade will probably open up as a starting quarterback. Um, he struggled throwing the ball as well, though. So yeah, really only completing 50% of his passes last year. Um, it was just a revolving door, like I said. They never really got consistent at the quarterback position. I think that's the one major thing that they're going to have to do um, to get any sort of success on the offensive side of the ball uh, heading into the season. Real quick, I wanted to mention, we talked about how, how bad that offense was last year. Um, 
So in the first two games of the year, Boston College won both, and then they played both against FCS teams, Maine and Howard. Uh, the second game in particular against Howard, they won that game 76 to nothing, and I believe that was one where the clock was running in the second half because it was that much of a blowout. Interesting point about that is they scored 76 points in that game against Howard. They scored less than 76 points in their next eight games combined, which is unbelievably just impotent offense. So obviously lots of work to do there for Scott Leffler, like you mentioned, a guy who hasn't exactly been impressive ever since kind of resurrecting a Temple defense a few years ago with Adazio. He went to Auburn, coached an unimpressive offense in 2012 under Gene Chizik, and then the last few years, obviously at Virginia Tech, as you've seen, Mike, where it, it has been far from scary, I guess we'll say, in Blacksburg, watching watching that offensive attack, at least for outsiders. Maybe it was a scary for you, I'm not sure. But um, offensively, uh, the the big question here for me is identity. Um, I can't tell, you know, if they want to be the uh, kind of the more pro-style, you know, stand-up quarterback and throw it around kind of offense, power run, uh, focused offense, or kind of more of a spread, you know, mobile quarterback, run the read option, maybe some power stuff in there kind of style. Uh, they bring in a transfer from Kentucky, Patrick yep. Tolles. Yep. Uh, he's a senior. He, but just because he came from the SEC, just because he's a senior, I'm not sure how high the expectations can be. Uh, last year, he completed 56.1% of his passes for about 2,100 yards, nine touchdowns, 14 interceptions, took 25 sacks, um, and that's in a Kentucky offense, obviously playing against some pretty tough competition you know, in the SEC, but uh, it's not like this is a cakewalk in the ACC either, and, and don't really know that there's there's a ton of value being brought there versus going to, like you mentioned, a Darius Wade, someone who was 50% completion, only had 42 attempts, but also brings a little bit of a mobile aspect yep. to him, to his game. Uh, 18 carries, 103 yards for an average of 5.7. I know that that's, that's kind of the basis of Steve Adazio's offense from his days at Florida, was a little bit more of a read option, kind of spread uh, base, but Looking at it, I mean, you mentioned John Hilleman. I mean, that is, I think that's your bell cow on offense. That's the guy that he was just a freshman last year, uh, but did fairly well. He's probably the most talented player on that offense, and I think that's the guy you got to go through uh, because you start looking at returning talent on on the receiver side of things, and it's nothing to really write home about. It's it's just it's hard to say what what the focus of this offense needs to be. Um, if it's me, it's probably that a little more of that traditional Adazio kind of spread him out a little bit of power run, but get a mobile quarterback in there and uh, throw to keep the defense honest, basically. I think that's that's the way that you go if you're going to be successful uh, up in Chestnut Hill. I was going to say, it's kind of ironic. We're talking about identity on offense and Scott Leffler in the same, same kind of sentence. Um, he really never established an offensive identity for Virginia Tech. So that's something that definitely has to give Boston College fans pause. Uh, bringing up Patrick Tolles is a great point, because after I got done rambling, I realized that I should probably mention Patrick Tolles um, coming in from Kentucky. He threw for 5,100 yards in his career there, but like you said, um, it doesn't necessarily mean he's a slam dunk to be the starting quarterback. Um, I think Darius Wade has a great chance to win the position just because he brings some mobility factor. So, like you said, I mean, if they decide that they're going to go to that spread option, um, kind of passing attack, 
um, with, with a running quarterback and kind of giving the ball to, to John Hilleman as well. I mean, I think that Darius Wade will have a great chance to be the starter. Um, Patrick Tolles, he can throw the football um, pretty well. I mean, he, he's throwing for 5,100 yards. You don't just do that out of nowhere. But like you said, I mean, the completion percentage is what we're going to be watching. I mean, is it really that big of a that big of an improvement from Darius Wade to Patrick Tolles? I don't really think so um, from that standpoint. So, you know, Darius Wade can run the football. I think that's going to play into uh, play, play into who ends up being the starting quarterback, especially considering if Scott Leffler decides that they want to do the spread, the spread passing attack and, and run out of that, that's kind of what he tried to do at Virginia Tech for – most of the time there, but they struggled with identity as well. So I'm with you. It's all about identity with the Boston College offense, and they're going to have to find it early in the season if they want to try to become bowl eligible. Yeah, and you mentioned the the defense as well, talking about kind of bringing back a lot of guys, only losing four starters, uh, three in the front seven. Problem is that's going to be two of your best defensive linemen and your best linebacker uh, and your leading tackler that – um, I think one of the things that was sneaky good about last year's defense that doesn't always come across is with how bad that offense was, the amount of time that defense would spend on the field and to be that good and let you know give up that few yards, there, there's a lot to say there. That said, I think that there is there is a lot of potential for regression here going from you know last year to this year. Uh, not only losing talent, but just it is so hard to be that good two years in a row, especially with uh, kind of average talent levels like Boston College has on that defense. Um, and, and that said, I mean, regression might still be a top 15, top 20 defense, and, and that'll carry them through a lot of games. But at that point, you're not quite good enough to win games 13 to 10 and, uh, and 20 to 17. I mean, at that point, the offense needs to get something together to, to kind of help that defense out and uh, keep the team competitive, and that's that's the thing that I, I question is if this defense takes a you know a step back, and again is not bad but is not as good as they were last year, can the offense compensate enough to to drive this team forward? And I think that's that's the big issue that I take with this. I, I don't I don't know that they can. I don't have a lot of reason to believe that they can. But I, I don't uh, know if you have any any other way of looking at that. I was just going to say right before you know before we get into their schedule, um, they dropped six games last year uh, when giving up twenty points or less. So that's kind of troubling because you're hoping that if your defense is that good, um, your offense can put literally anything together um, to, to kind of scrape out some wins. But they had a lot of trouble doing that last year, and it's something that they're definitely going to have to do this year as well. I've told people about, you know, Boston College's team last year. They talk about, oh, Georgia Tech should be able to beat them. You know, they they didn't have any offense, whatever. And I'm like, well, you could beat them last year if you could score about 10 points, but the problem was scoring 10 points. Um, that said, <laughs> yeah. apparently, you know, 9 out of 12 opponents were able to do that. But um, but still, there you know, there's still a little bit of an uneasiness when Florida State is beating that, that tough of a team by a score of 14 to nothing. You know, there's... Uh, so something to be said for that. We look at this schedule, and the first thing that jumps off of me, off the schedule at me, is the non-conference. So they start in Ireland at Georgia Tech. Week two is uh, on the road at UMass. 
Two weeks later, they're home against Wagner and then Buffalo, Wagner being an FCS team. And then uh, right before Thanksgiving, they're home against Connecticut. So for those keeping score, you're out of conference are at UMass, home against Wagner, home against Buffalo, home against Connecticut. When Connecticut is the toughest out of conference game that you play as an ACC team, gotta go four zero. You should be going four zero, um, and so that's a, it's a little bit of pressure for a team, especially as as imbalanced as Boston College is. Um, but if they're talking about going to a bowl game, you're not doing yourself any favors by losing any of those games. I agree. Uh, gotta go four zero. Um, you're playing UMass at a neutral site at Foxborough at the Patriot Stadium. Um, yeah, they got to go 4-0 out of conference if they want to have any chance because, Joey, you and I were talking about before we came on, their in-conference schedule is pretty brutal. Um, while they only play four true road games, um, they got they open up against Georgia Tech. They're at Virginia Tech, home against Clemson, um, home against Syracuse, at NC State, home against Louisville, at Florida State, at Wake Forest. So... There are no real easy games for them. Um, the Georgia Tech game, obviously, opening up against the option will be tough. Um, going on the road to Blacksburg will be tough. Home against Clemson, the best quarterback in the country, obviously going to be tough. Home game against Syracuse. Syracuse could surprise some people. Um, I, I think having that in the middle of the season is going to be the make or break, Joey. Uh, we kind of talked about that as well uh, for both teams. Um at NC State, that's definitely not going to be easy. Home against Louisville, not going to be easy. At Florida State, tough to see them winning that game. And then at Wake Forest, Wake Forest will probably be a bottom feeder in the ACC as a whole, not just in the Atlantic Division. So um, when looking at their schedule, I mean, it's going to be tough for them to really scrape out six wins, especially if they don't go 4-0 out of conference. And that's why it's the Syracuse game that, to me, I think is kind of the the turning point. Um, so you figure go 4-0 out of conference, maybe beat Wake Forest that last week of the year. At that point, the most winnable game left, to me, looks like Syracuse. Um, and obviously that's going to be a program that is improving. I think as the year goes on, they're going to be adapting a new offense, uh, kind of getting used to that. That happens October 22nd, and Boston College will be coming off of a bye week. I think that's their shot. That's their shot at making a bowl game. Um, I don't know if they get it done or not. That's a, that's an offense that no matter how good your defense is, they might end up scoring you know quite a few points on you. But uh, time will tell. I look at this. I think I'm going to pick a five and seven record here. I think they do get it done out of conference. I think they beat Wake Forest, and I, I don't know that they win any other ACC games, Mike. I was going to say four and eight, Joey. Um, I don't think they go four and zero out of conference, and I think the only game in conference they're going to win is at Wake Forest to close the season out. So that puts them at four and eight. Um, you know, I, I think that they'll find a way to slip up, whether it be UMass, Wagner. Um, I think they'll beat Wagner, but UMass, Wagner, Buffalo. Um, I, I just don't know. And then UConn, I mean, UConn, you're getting them towards the end of the season. Bob Diaco has a good defense there at UConn, like he like he had at Notre Dame when he was a coordinator there. Um, UConn's not going to be very good, but you're getting them towards the end of the season, and um, that that's going to be make or break. I see 4-8. and eight. Um, I just don't I, – I have trouble seeing them beat Syracuse as well, even though that game's at home. I just think Syracuse's offense could be a little bit too much. Because let's face it, against Boston College, if the offense is anything like it was last year, 14 points could be too much. So 
Uh, we'll have to see what happens. It's all about offensive consistency with Boston College, but I see them finishing with a 4-8 and eight record. So then if you're Boston College at that point, what are what are you thinking about Adazio? Are you looking at him on the hot seat? Are you maybe content and hoping that's progress from last year? I mean, where does that leave you as a program? I mean, in my opinion, I think Adazio should be on the hot seat now just because the offenses have been so bad. I mean, you can point to the defenses and say, well, you know, he's had really great defenses at the school. Defenses win championships, yada, yada, yada. you got to hire an offensive coordinator that really gets the job done. Scott Loeffler has never proven to be that. So I'm not sure he's the answer for BC. Only time will tell. Um, I think their offense will be better than it was last year. I don't think it will be a lot better, though, and I think their defense will take a step back. But when looking at their non-conference record, it's tough to seeing them go anything less than 3-1. and one. So I think because of that, they'll improve. They'll win one conference game, and they'll finish 4-8, and eight. and that's an improvement from last year. But I think Adazio is definitely on the hot seat heading into this season. If they go 4-8, and eight, I think he's definitely out. I'm right there with you. I, I'm not sure that he's the answer long term. And, but you know, then again, I, I, you have to give him credit for one thing though, up at Boston college in his time, every single one of those guys that has played for him, they are all dudes. They are all just guys being dudes, Mike. They're dudes. We're, we're, we're guys being dudes on this podcast so we can relate. There are a lot of dudes up at Boston college for sure. All right, let's move on. Let's talk now about Pittsburgh. The Panthers coming back for year two under uh, Pat Narduzzi. Had a really good first year. Uh, was sneaky good. Ended up finishing eight and five, but started out pretty pretty hot. Uh, started out six and one. Uh, kind of pushed Iowa to the limit. Was uh, you know obviously Iowa that ended up going to the Rose Bowl. Uh, they lost to North Carolina. Seemed to kind of derail them a little bit, but. Uh, overall, a good first year, and most of which was without James Conner, who obviously was uh, was going, undergoing treatments for cancer after uh, tearing his ACL early in the year. They get him back for 2016, and he's your reigning, or he was your reigning 2014 ACC Player of the Year, if I'm not mistaken. The, and the thing is that you know they're going to say, oh well, he's he'll be back and he'll be back in form. But again, this guy's coming off of a serious injury as well as cancer treatments, I don't know that you could just, you know, willy-nilly say, oh, it's just, you know, it's James Conner. He'll be back. He's good. Yeah, no, I mean, I agree. I mean, it's going to be a process for him. Uh, obviously, it's just good to have him healthy, um, whether you're a Pittsburgh fan or not. I think we can all share in that sentiment. Um, you no, know, for Pittsburgh last year, obviously a surprise when you don't have James Conner, who you're expecting to run for almost 2,000 yards, and all of a sudden he's no longer in the fold after game one. Um, Kadri Allison stepped in very nicely, though, as a true freshman for Pittsburgh. Uh, rushed for 1,100 yards, a team leading 11 touchdowns. Nate Peterman, a quarterback, he's a heck of a game manager. Um, 20 touchdowns, but only eight interceptions. Threw for 2,200 yards. Um, completed about 62% of his passes. So um, he's definitely adequate enough to get the job done in the ACC, especially when you have a running back or a running back or a set of running backs like Pittsburgh does. Um, the one thing about Pittsburgh last year, they had no interest in that bowl game. Uh, they played the military bowl against Navy. You could kind of tell from the outset they had no interest in being there, and they got blown out of the stadium. Ended up closing it to 16 before it was all said and done. 44-28 was the final there, but they really never seemed like they were into that game or really interested in playing there um, in the military bowl. But overall, a pretty successful year one for Pat Narduzzi. Uh, going 8-5, and five, 
turning a program really around because Pittsburgh's been just kind of a six and six type of team, but they had a lot of excitement behind them heading to that bowl game eight and four. Um, a team that might have gotten snubbed from a couple of bigger bowls, and I, that's kind of how they played. But um, I think that if you have a guy like James Conner back in the fold along Cody and I think having that one two punch at running back is going to be huge. Uh, it was released today um, by the Pittsburgh coaching staff that James Conner will be a full go uh, when practice opens in August. So uh, that's really good news. So he's progressing in the right direction. Now, how effective he'll be, um, you expect that he will ha- definitely have an impact just because he's a heck of a football player. But um, as far as recovering from that cancer treatment, we're not really sure where he's at. I mean, he's in remission, but how much of his strength from – before he was diagnosed, does he have, and how much of that does he have back? And that's something we're going to have to watch, especially with his breakaway speed, um, his strength getting through the line and that sort of thing. But um, on offense alone, I think Pittsburgh is in pretty good shape if they have Connor and Allison at the running back position. Yeah, you mentioned being coming out of cancer treatments. Obviously, it is a phenomenal story that I think has kind of been a, a great thing for people nationwide to kind of watch is James Connor going through a tough time obviously a nasty injury and then going through cancer and having him back, like you mentioned, is, is great for everybody. Um, he, he is a joy to watch until he's playing against your team's defense. Cause then he was kind of a terror in 2014. But um, one of the big things to, you know, to kind of question is his strength and his weight. I mean, that was a huge part of his game as a, as a freshman was he's a very powerful runner. Um, and so maybe, maybe, you know, if he if he doesn't kind of retain that weight, maybe it turns into speed. Uh, maybe it, you know he's not able to fully recover. We don't know. Uh, we'll find out, obviously. But um, I think with like you mentioned, I mean, a, a one-two punch of Connor and Allison, that's a, that's a good, a really good start. Not to mention Darren Hall, third leading rusher, the second leading rusher from last year, also returns. Um, so a lot of talent on that on that Pittsburgh offense. Nate Peterman, uh, sneaky good running the ball, but also. Fine with throwing the ball. I mean, not not gonna torch a whole lot of defenses by himself. But I, I think the other piece of that is also figuring out the wide receiver position. And this is where we start talking about what does Pittsburgh's offense look like post Tyler Boyd. Yep. Um, Tyler Boyd with 91 catches last year. Uh, next closest on the team was 27. Um, they they found every which way to get Tyler Boyd the football. Um, there were times where I remember Georgia Tech had him, the assignment was having him in triple coverage, and I think there were two or three catches he made in that game against triple coverage, which is unthinkable, but that's just, that's the name of his game and kind of what Pittsburgh's offense has been the last couple of years. So if, if they can kind of make sure to transition that passing attack uh, to other players, and you've got Dantes Ford coming back, he's a senior, he was their second leading receiver, uh, Scott Orndorf number two tight end coming back he brings back 13 catches so there's there's some people there that can can be weapons it's just making sure they take that next step in doing so um, this can be a very good kind of rushing attack that the the passing attack can kind of just supplement for i think um the question is again just how well are they going to be able to make that transition no definitely um Post Tyler Boyd's not going to be easy. He was a guy that could take a short pass and take it the distance, uh, similar to how Ryan Switzer kind of does it with North Carolina. Um, and, and similarly, Boyd also got done in the return game, uh, kick returns, punt returns, um, was a guy that could really break the game open on special teams as well. So not having him in the fold 
in totality is a huge loss, um, but he moves on to the NFL. The one encouraging thing, like you mentioned, returning Dantes Ford, the fact that he averaged 19.4 yards per catch last year is pretty impressive considering the sample size. I mean, I know he only had 26 catches, but that was second most on the team. And 26 catches is a big enough sample size when you're averaging 19 yards per catch, so he's definitely a big play threat, a guy to look to in the, in the deep passing game, which really, if you're going to run the ball with Allison and James Conner, it's more of a pro-style attack anyway. You can run a play-action pass off that and hit Dantes Ford over the top. I'm sure we'll be seeing that a couple times should everyone stay healthy. Um, it, also interesting to watch um, how they're going to replace J.P. Holtz at tight end. He finished third on the team last year in receptions, uh, was also third in yards with 350. He had four touchdowns, a guy they look to a ton in the red zone. Um, one of their key red zone threats is now off the team as well. So the receiving core is definitely one that we're going to have to watch. Um, how are they going to recover from these losses that they have? Scott Orndoff is another guy that um, kind of got his feet wet last year, ended up with five touchdowns on only 13 catches, which is quite impressive. Um, his longest touchdown was a 55-yard catch. So um, he's shown big playability as well um, a couple times in a limited sample size for Pittsburgh last year, and he's going to slide into a much bigger role now that they lose a guy like J.B. Holtz and a guy like Tyler Boyd um, at their, in the receiving core, both tight end and receiver respectively. So um, the receiving core, how well Nate Peterson gets in the ball as well is definitely going to factor in. If Nate Peterson plays just like he did last year, that should be enough for Pittsburgh to hang in enough ACC games to be a factor, especially when considering the defense, which we haven't really even talked about yet. That's the calling card of Pat Narduzzi, obviously a great defensive coordinator at Michigan State. Uh, coming into Pittsburgh last year, they, they had um, one of the top defenses in the ACC. Rushing defense is very good. Um, they force you to throw, and they're very good. They're secondary. They've recruited well in the secondary, obviously, um, this past offseason. But the guys they have in place already, um, specifically Terrace Webb at, at safety, one of the more underrated uh, defensive backs in the entire conference, anchoring the back end of that defense. So um, Pat Narduzzi's defense is going to keep you in enough games. If Nate Peterman can find a way to get the ball and – uh, get the ball to some of his playmakers on the outside and they get enough receivers uh, making plays down the field. I think Pittsburgh can definitely make some noise in the ACC this year. Yeah, for Pittsburgh to be good, like you, meant, like you mentioned, I mean, that offense doesn't have to light the world on fire with as good as this defense is going to be. Um, they bring back eight of the top nine in the front seven. And listen to this. It is senior, senior, junior, senior, 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 junior. So there's not going to be a whole lot of intimidating that group. There's not going to be a whole lot of fooling that group. Um, that, that seems to set up extremely well for Pat Narduzzi's defense, which was already good last year and kind of figures to get better this year with some continuity there, um, a majority of their top players. And then the one in the secondary that you didn't mention but uh, has, to, has to be mentioned here is Jordan Whitehead, the safety. Yep. Led the team with 91 tackles, uh, only had one interception, broke up six passes, uh, but recovered a fumble as well. So... Uh, he plays kinda, a little offense, too, Joey. They threw him in, uh, if I remember correctly, last year. They threw Jordan Whitehead in on offense, too, tried to make him a playmaker in the slot. What can't that guy do? I mean, it's that is a that is a leader. You know, as that, this is always a true freshman, if I if I'm not mistaken. So that is a that is an awfully impressive freshman campaign to lead the team in tackles. Uh, a look up here. Let's see. He was, I believe. Let's see, where was he? He was sixth in the conference in tackles. 
um, and third in solo tackles last year. As a, tr- as a true freshman. As a true freshman. So that is a, a serious weapon on the back end of the defense. And like you mentioned, there's a lot of uh, talent that has been recruited there as well. So I think this defense is in extremely good shape. They, they could secretly be maybe the second or third best defense in the conference uh, when it's all said and done. And there, there's, there's not a whole lot of slouch defenses there at the top end of the ACC. So uh, defensively, really kind of cooking with gas there if you're Narduzzi. It's just a matter of making sure the offense is capable of doing you know, something, which I, I think they will be. Uh, I think they'll be just fine. Definitely, and uh, b- before we move to the schedule, uh, a couple more guys on the defensive side of the ball there for him. Lambos, he's a, he's a linebacker for them, um, moving into his senior year. Uh, had a great year last year, 88 tackles, five sacks. They, of course, also have Vontae Maddox in the secondary, plays corner. He's becoming a shutdown type, type player for them, um, plays that field corner. Um, plays a little bit boundary corner as well. They bounce him around a good bit, so he's obviously athletic enough to handle both uh, both sides of the field. So um, really like the versatility of the Pittsburgh defense and obviously the, the veteran group that they have. Yeah, Pittsburgh in good position, maybe not this year, but certainly moving that way to be uh, a heavy contender every year, year in and year out in the Coastal Division and maybe in the conference. Uh, looking at the schedule, Mike, so starting out with – five games, four of which are out of conference, home against Villanova, home against Penn State, on the road in Stillwater at Oklahoma State, uh, on the road at North Carolina in the conference opener, and then home against Marshall. That that looks like a little bit of a daunting, you know, two games against Penn State and then at Oklahoma State. But I think that might be, a, that has some potential to be a little bit of a coming out party for Narduzzi's defense here with Pittsburgh and what, what they're able to do. Not to mention that you get North Carolina and what was a pivotal game in the division last year. You get that right out of the gate uh, in conference play. Yeah, definitely. It's kind of an interesting spread there. Um, having Villanova in the opener, that's more to get their feet wet, I think, um, before playing Penn State. I think having the Penn State game at home is huge. Uh, an underrated in-state rivalry because they don't see each other too often. But playing a team like Penn State, that's obviously going to garner a good bit of hype there in early September. Um, at Oklahoma State, obviously, Cowboys aren't as good as they have been in the past. Um, but their offense is still quite good. They have a very good receiving core, Oklahoma State does. So uh, not going to be an easy task going to Stillwater and then following it up a week later going to North Carolina to play that offense. So... The defense will definitely be tested early on in the season. Um, they need to try to get through that stretch, I think, um, more towards a 3-1, and 4-0, more, more so than maybe 2-2, two and two, which is how I see it potentially happening. Um, obviously, Marshall on October 1st, that's more of a game to get you ramped up right before you head into the bulk of your ACC schedule there, uh, sandwiched in between North Carolina and Georgia Tech. So, uh, tough early part of the schedule for Pittsburgh, but Joey, how do you see this kind of turning out record-wise for the Panthers. You know, as much as there are, there are two power conferences on the um, the out-of-conference schedule, and there's, uh, I mean, there's obviously your ACC slate. Like, this is not too daunting for Pittsburgh. This is kind of manageable. Um, I think they win three out of those four out-of-conference games. I think they will beat Penn State. Uh, I think Penn State's feeling a lot of pressure in that game, and I, I would not be surprised to see Pittsburgh get up and beat their in-state rivals uh, in that game. I think they beat 
I think they win on the road at Virginia. I think they win at home against Virginia Tech. I think they probably end up winning at home against Georgia Tech as well, although that might be a little bit of a toss-up. Um, it's Georgia Tech has won two out of three of the, you know, since Pittsburgh's joined the, the conference. Um, but, again, we don't know what we're going to get from Georgia Tech this year, so it's kind of hard to say. Uh, on the road at Miami, on the road at Clemson, Duke and Syracuse. The only game that I don't know that is really winnable here is that road game at Clemson. Other than that, I mean, it is entirely conceivable that this is a a six and two, even a seven and one team in the ACC. Um, I mean, there, there's the sky's the limit for this team, especially with how the schedule lays out. And and as I mentioned before, they open the conference schedule with a game on the road at North Carolina at the end of September. If you win that game, I mean, that was the swing game last year. That gives you a lot of momentum, obviously, against the conference favorite, for what that's worth. Um, and, and from there, I mean, there's not, a, there's not a game on the schedule that you can't win. In, I mean, I, I hesitate to say you can't win at Clemson, but it's, that's going to be a really steep hill to climb. Other than that, everything is totally manageable. So I could, I could definitely see this being like a 9 or a 10 win team when it's all said and done. I don't know, Mike. I mean, Mike, what do you what do you see when you look at the schedule? Um, I see eight and four, maybe nine and three. Um, but I'm I'm high on Pittsburgh as well. Um, the, it, it could definitely the win total could definitely exceed that. Um, Villanova and Penn State. I think they win both of those games. I'm I'm with you. I think Penn State they're they're under a lot of pressure there. James Franklin has recruited well, but they haven't really played to their talent level. We've heard that quite a bit before in the ACC. Um, Going on the road at Oklahoma State, it's not going to be easy um, to win that game. I, I think they could actually drop that game just when considering um, Oklahoma State all the weapons they have on offense. But if Pittsburgh summons enough offense in their own right in that game, I think they could be right right in the mix there on the road uh, against the Cowboys. But um, through the first five games, I mean, that North Carolina game is really the toss-up. I mean, I think um, conservatively, I think they beat Villanova and Penn State. I'm going to say they beat Marshall in early October. So that gives you three wins out of the first five. Um, Oklahoma State, I'm just going to go out on a limb, say they lose to Oklahoma State. So you're sitting at 3-1. and one. North Carolina is a toss-up game. If you win that, you move to 4-1. and one, You get more towards nine wins, in my opinion, when you look at the rest of the schedule. But if you don't win that game, you start out 3-2. and two. Um, It's looking a whole lot more like it's going to be 8-4, and four, um, more so than 9-3. and three. Um, Georgia Tech at home, I think they win that game. I think they beat Virginia on the road. I think they beat Virginia Tech at home. Um, Virginia Tech has never played, just from a Virginia Tech fan's perspective, Virginia Tech never plays well at Heinz Field. Um, they, they never win there. Uh, I really like Pittsburgh's chances of winning that game. Going on the road at Miami will definitely not be an easy task. Miami's going to be much better coached this year. But that's, as far as talent level is concerned, I think Pittsburgh is every bit as talented on both sides of the football as Miami is. So I could definitely see Pittsburgh winning that game. Clemson, I'm with you. Um, I think that's going to be a really tough game just considering what the Tigers look like on paper. But closing out with Duke and Syracuse at home, I think those are both winnable games. So uh, I'm going to say conservatively 8-4 and four just because I think they open up the season 3-2, and two, and I think they'll find a way. Um, I think they could see a loss against Clemson being their third of the year and then perhaps losing against Miami um, being their fourth loss. But... Um, I think eight and four, maybe nine and three, uh, is a pretty safe bet for Pittsburgh if they play to their potential. One more point I want to bring up here is I think that there's actually every bit of potential that Pittsburgh could go six and zero at home. 
um, or undefeated. I haven't counted the games yet. Villanova, Penn State, Marshall, Georgia Tech, Virginia Tech, Duke, and Syracuse. Uh, so that would, I think there's a potential they go seven and zero at home. I, I think I should say, um, not that they'll necessarily win every single one of those, but uh, especially talking about not having to go on the road to play any of those, that those are all very winnable and should set up favorably for the Panthers. Um, Mike, I think the time has come. Let's move on to our final uh, preview of the night. Looking at the Syracuse Orange under the uh, newly hired Dino Babers out of Bowling Green University. He is a guy who coached one of the better offenses in college football over the last few years and certainly one of the best teams uh, in the group of five uh, over the last few years, thanks in large part to that offense. It is a very pass-heavy offense, an air raid, if you will. Um, not totally sure how well Syracuse is set up talent-wise and uh, personnel-wise, I guess, just in general, to fully run this system year one under Babers. Um, but like we said, I mean, a guy that I think, you know, we, we have a lot of high hopes for and what he can do for this program over the you know, next few years within the ACC. Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, he spent four years, when referring to Dino Baber, spent four years as an assistant with Baylor um, under Art Bryles. Obviously, that offense can put up a lot of points. So that's kind of where he learned learned the craft, so to speak. Um, Dino Babers is a guy who is really an offensively-minded coach, which is good because that's what Syracuse needs. Um, they've really struggled offensively, 113th nationally in total yards. In, in uh, 2014, they were 118th last year. So they actually even took a step back from where they were two years ago when they looked like one of the worst, um, one of the worst offenses in the last decade. Um, so you consider some of the bad offenses in the conference, Boston College, Wake Forest, it really didn't get as bad for them as it did for Syracuse. I mean, Syracuse just continued to take steps backwards. Um, Eric Dungey at the quarterback position, um, he's going to be the starter. Um played a lot last year as a true freshman they're going to need to to move into a better direction with him offensively um he completed 59 percent of his passes 11 touchdowns only five interceptions really was more of a game manager for them last year um threw for about 1300 yards but they're going to need a lot more production than that um out of him throwing the football and you know baber's assist on which is more wide open should favor him a little bit better um, as far as from a quick reads perspective, um, kind of getting the ball out quickly. So I think that's going to be crucial for them moving forward. Um, the, the offense obviously needs to take a step forward. There's no question about that. Jordan Fredericks is back in the fold at running back, 600 yards, four touchdowns last year. Um, you know, he was their key runner, receiving core, obviously returning a lot of talent there as well. Um, Brisley Esteem or Esteem, I always butcher his name. I've been told his name like three or four different times. He's a big-time playmaker in the return game, um, catches a lot of short passes, can turn him into um, more more deep plays down the field. Um, had two, only 293 yards receiving last year, but was averaging 17.2 yards per catch. So he's a guy who can obviously take plays over the top and make a difference. Um so I don't know if Syracuse has all of the weapons at their disposal. Dino Babers will necessarily have two or three years from now. But I think the offense, the offensive system will definitely be more exciting for Syracuse than it has been in the last few years. Yeah, no doubt. Um, I should probably mention, too, I, I think I misspoke a little bit saying that they were just a straight air raid offense. Uh, you are correct that he came out of the Baylor 
coaching tree down there under Art Bryles, and uh, it turns out it's a little more of a balanced system uh, than than many people tend to think, including myself apparently. Uh, if you look at Bowling Green last year, the the splits on passing attempts versus rushing attempts, uh, 594 passing attempts, 542 rushing attempts. So a slight lean towards uh, being pass-heavy, but overall f- fairly balanced. Uh, and really that's what you're going to get a lot in that spread system of three and four receiver sets, uh, a lot of handoffs up the middle, meanwhile kind of throwing to receivers on the outside. Um, so it should, should be interesting watching him try to kind of implement this system there. Uh, he brings in, like you said, Eric Dungy returns. He's a sophomore. He was a freshman last year when he, he did okay, about 1,300 yards through the air, 11 touchdowns, five interceptions, uh, just south of 60% completion, which you start talking about a, a freshman quarterback. I mean, I, I would take those numbers quite a, you know all day long. And, and meanwhile, then he's also got 81 carries for 462 yards and five touchdowns on the ground, averaged 5.7 yards per carry. So a multi-talented guy who, who brings a lot of, of talent to the table, uh, for this Dino Babers offense. Um, a, lot of, a lot of youth in that backfield now between Dungy and then Jordan Fredericks, both sophomores this year, um, but plenty of seniors kind of surrounding them with uh, some of the backup running backs and then the uh, the receivers and tight ends. So uh, plenty to work with. Hard to say exactly how it's going to fit his system right out of the gate, as we mentioned before, but um, – Certainly plenty of potential with as, as good of a mind as Babers kind of at the at the helms. Uh, one other thing I think worth noting is that they lose three of their starting offensive linemen. Um, really only, they don't return any starts from last year. Um, they bring back two seniors, their center and their right guard. That's Omari Palmer and Jason Emmerich. But the question is, you know, what, what will those guys be able to do in this new system? Uh, got a bunch of probably sophomores I figure would be starting uh, Cody Conway, Aaron Roberts, maybe even some freshmen, you never know. So might be some, some growing pains there, especially with some new offensive linemen for this, this offense, but uh, certainly under Babers, you, you figure you're going to see them get a lot better from week one, week two into week 10, week 11, week 12. No, definitely. And you speak about growing pains on offense. Um, if we want to move a little bit towards the defensive side of the ball, um, they had some growing pains last year. A lot of hits from graduation a couple of years ago. Um, had a pretty veteran-laden group in the 2014 season. Um, last year, obviously, a lot of younger guys stepped up and had to play right away, which wasn't an ideal situation for Syracuse, as we could tell by their final record. Um, and the fact that they really just struggled uh, defensively just as much as they did on the offensive side of the ball last year. The one guy that I'm going to watch on the defensive side of the ball, safety Antoine Cordy, um, finished second in the ACC in tackles for loss with 12. So that's kind of a, a statistic you're not really expecting out of a player who's who's manning the Syracuse defense. But Antoine Cordy is a guy definitely going to want to watch um, at the safety position, kind of anchors that secondary. Um, that defense is really going to have guys – they're going to need to step up and kind of have another another good year of development. Um, linebackers, pretty good. Zaire Franklin, 81 tackles, 11 for loss last year. Um, questions on the defensive line, just as, just as many questions on the defensive front as the offensive front. Um, they're going to have to step up and play well. It's going to be a young group on both sides of the ball, and I think 
really the level of development here in the offseason heading to, heading towards um, this this 2016 campaign is really going to dictate if Syracuse takes a step forward this year. As you mentioned, having to replace a lot on their defensive line, um, several of their top players uh, graduated and will not be returning, but top five linebackers all return, top six in the secondary all return. So plenty of continuity there, and especially that linebacker group, a lot of juniors and seniors in that group uh, kind of need to be the heart and soul of that defense if, uh, if they're going to be able to keep Syracuse in games, if, you know, if any times when the offense starts to struggle. Um, I think there's plenty of potential on this defense. I don't know what the expectation should be. Um, it's kind of hard to say. I mean, not anything defensively special or, you know, super disappointing last year, just kind of a middle-of-the-road defense. And I don't know that there's a whole lot of reason to think that that figures to change, at least in 2016. No, I agree. Um, it's going to be a toss-up on both sides of the ball. Um, it's going to be all about the development of the young guys. If they step up and play well uh, with better coaching, I think their record will well improve. But there are just so many question marks on both sides of the ball. Um, can Eric Dungey emerge at the quarterback position in a spread offense? Um, you know, can Jordan Fredericks at running back continue to improve, put on a little bit more strength um, to his 215-pound frame um, at the receiver position? Will they have enough guys step up and be playmakers in the passing game? Will the offensive line um, improve and, and show and show another year of development um, from that young group? Defensively, will the defensive line be able to get enough pressure on opposing quarterbacks? Will the linebacking and secondary group be able to adapt if that defensive line doesn't play quite as well as expected? Um, there are just a lot, of, a, a lot, a lot of question marks for Dino Babers. Um, offensive side of the ball is where he's going to have the most concern just because he's an offensive-minded coach and he's not going to have his level of skill players at the positions where he wants to in year one. Um, that's part of the reason why I see Syracuse struggling. Um, but, yeah, Joey, let's take a look at their schedule. Well, before we do, one more thing I want to bring up about the defense to keep in mind is uh, one more piece of that Baylor system that, uh, that is brought – is tempo it is an up-tempo system like you mentioned we were talking about earlier is kind of how it's being used and that can sometimes have a an ill effect on the defense obviously getting tired spending more time on the field as the offense goes faster either faster to score or faster to go three and out or you know whatever it might be so um that's just another thing to kind of monitor as this babers offense gets implemented at syracuse and uh, kind of go through some transitionary period. Looking at the schedule, so as always, we'll start with the out-of-conference. So start with a home game against Colgate. That should be a, a softball. Uh, from there, two weeks later, home against South Florida, then on the road at Connecticut, before finally a, a game with Notre Dame. So this is a little a little daunting. Uh, South Florida's Sneakily, one of the should be one of the better group of five teams this year. Um, I think this this sets up poorly for Syracuse. It, it is a tough non-conference slate, especially for year one under a new coach. I was going to say you're really nice saying it sets up poorly. Um, that that's putting it nicely. I think um, they'll beat Colgate. Um, yeah, they'll beat Colgate. They play Wake Forest on the road also and UConn on the road. And outside of that, 
Uh, slim pickings from a wins perspective. Um, three or four wins might be the ceiling. Four might be pushing it. Um, I think for Syracuse fans, enjoy the Colgate win because I think after that, honestly, unless you beat South or unless you beat Connecticut on September twenty fourth. I'm not sure that you'll see a win potentially until October 8th at Wake Forest. And, I mean, even then it's going to be tough. Um, on the road at BC, I guess that could be a fourth win if we're going to put them at a four-win ceiling. But they're playing BC on the road. Um, and, and they barely beat them last year at home. So three or four wins for Syracuse. Um, I... I think it could even just be two wins honestly i'm i'm of the opinion they beat colgate um and they lose to yukon and maybe beat wake forest i think boston college could actually beat syracuse um beat because they have them at home so i'm going to say the only win that syracuse gets in conference uh in the 2016 season is against wake forest and maybe that only other win is going to be that one out of conference game against colgate so I'm putting them at two wins. Man, that's a that's that's a team bottoming out right there. Um, by that I mean Wake Forest losing to a team that only won one other game. But um, no, the the other one that I think that is potential to be stolen here, um, and if you're a fan of this team, please don't hate me for this, but is NC State. Uh, that comes at the the end of the season, November twelfth. That is a home game for Syracuse, so you figure they've started to adapt this new system, this new offense. Maybe, maybe Dino's got it cooking by then. Uh, and then, not to mention that the the Carrier Dome is not an easy place to play. Um, Syracuse has found a way to keep games close and even steal wins at times uh, against teams that they had no business really being in games with. It, you know, but playing in that Carrier Dome where it gets loud, uh, and it just it, it's a good environment for them and a bad one for opponents, and so. I think maybe that's one that they could steal and have potentially three conference wins if you include a potential Boston College win there. But it's a pretty bleak outlook, I got to say. Um, week two against Louisville, you figure you might get torched in that game by Lamar Jackson. Uh, South Florida, that's a tough road trip for a team from Tampa, but uh, figures to be a good team. Uh, just not sure that they're ready in week three under Dino Babers to win that game. Uh, on the road at Connecticut, that's probably a toss-up. Maybe a uh, you know get the home team the favorite there in UConn. Notre Dame seems unwinnable at this point for Syracuse. Uh, at Wake Forest seems like a good a good bet if you're going to find you know some some wins in the schedule. Virginia Tech hard to say that they could beat the Hokies even in year one under you know new coaches for both teams. At Boston College at Clemson. Um, like you said, Boston College may be winnable. At Clemson is not. Uh, NC State maybe steal one. Home against Florida State, not winnable. At Pittsburgh, probably not winnable. So, pretty bleak outlook. Uh, you said two and ten. I'll give them. I think I'll give them three and nine. I think I'll give them three and nine. And I'm going to say they they beat Colgate. I'm going to say they beat Wake Forest. I'm going to say they beat. Oh. BC, UConn? I'm kind of between BC, UConn, and NC State because that NC State does seem like one that they might be able to steal. You like that upset. I like that upset. I, you know, 
this one of these, the strategies, call it now, and then when it happens, take credit for it, and if it doesn't happen, well, it's okay, it was a few months ago, we didn't know. So, yeah, that, that's what I figure, I call them for two wins, and then if they win three, nobody can necessarily destroy me, because they still went three and nine, you know? But you're still a hater for only going two. Uh, yeah, I know, I'm a hater with their basketball program, too, apparently, I've taken <laughs> a lot of flack for that, so... Well, that's right. The, the obvious uh, bias from them making the tournament, we didn't like that. Um, yeah, exactly. But yeah, I think I think three and nine, best case, probably four and four, four and eight here. Um, it, it should be a tough. It's a tough year to have a first year head coach, especially talking about needing to change your personnel, everything like this. But worry not, Syracuse fans. I think you're in good hands with this coach and with this staff. Um, I think you could expect to see this program at some of the best levels it's been. Uh, in several years, just given a little bit more time. It'll get worse before it gets better, but I think it'll definitely get better. Um, I think this is the best chance they have to build a sustainable program in this conference than they've had in quite some time. A great hire, no doubt. Well, Mike, I think that about covers it for tonight. Um, It's been a good preview of the former Big East, obviously Boston College, Pittsburgh, and Syracuse. We'll be back next week with another set of previews as well as some talk about uh, more of the outcome of the ACC kickoff. Uh, Until then, you can reach us on Twitter. I am at FTRSJoey. He is at MikeMcDanielACC. We are at BC Podcast ACC. You can email us, basketballconferencepodcast at gmail.com. But please send us your questions. You know, send us your, uh, your thoughts, you know, we appreciate you guys listening. We are on iTunes now. Uh, you can just search Basketball Conference Podcast. We are on iTunes if that's your preferred method. I know it is my preferred podcast uh, avenue. Um, but, Mike, it's been fun. I look forward to doing this again next week. Yeah, sounds good, Joey. Uh, we'll come back. More previews, more analysis uh, as we continue to push closer to the start of the season. It's getting close. Looking forward to it. Until then, go ACC.